Uh, good morning. That was pathetic. Good morning. Way better. Welcome to church. Uh, my name is Gary Anderson. Happy New Year. I know that was last year, last week, last year. That was last week. Uh, Happy New Year for those of you who haven't been to church since uh, 2022. Again, my name is Gary Anderson. I am the new guy here. I uh, my title, uh, which is not that big of a deal around here, is pastor in residence, uh, at least for the time being. And I told the first service, I think I know what a pastor is. And I definitely know what a residence is. And so when we came, I thought that meant that my family and I would be moving into the stone house, which would have been great. Great location, two beds, three baths, whatever. Um, But that's not what it means. We'll figure it out together. Uh, It is a joy to get to uh, be back with you this morning and to open up God's word together. We're kicking off uh, a new series that we'll get to in a minute. Uh, But before we do, let me just pray and invite God's presence to uh, anoint our time in his word. God, we thank you once again for this day that you've allowed us to gather here in your house uh, to give you the one, the only one who is worthy of our worship and our praise to give it to you this morning. I pray that uh, it would be a sweet offering in your sight. And I pray, God, also, uh, as we have come here, not only to worship you, but to hear from you, that you would speak to us now, that you would speak to us through your word, that we would not leave this place unchanged uh, because we've had an encounter with the living God this morning. So uh, soften our hearts, open them to receive what it is you have for us this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I want to invite my friend Julie up to read today's text. It is Luke 18, verses 9 to 17. Luke 18, verses 9 to 17. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God." Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter in. Amen. Thanks, Julie. In uh, 1986, when Peter Edward Rose retired from baseball, from his playing career in baseball, he finished one of the greatest careers that Major League Baseball has ever seen. It was not a first ballot Hall of Fame career. It was a statue outside the stadium career. Over 24 years, he amassed literally dozens of major league and national league records, many of which still stand today, including two which are on the Mount Rushmore of major league records, most games ever played, and most hits ever. And 36 years later, those records still stand. 
For the last two years of his playing career with the Cincinnati Reds, he was a, a player manager. He coached the team while he played for it. And after he retired from playing, he just went full-time into the managing side of baseball. His managing career did not last quite as long as his playing career did. Three years later, in March of 1989, Sports Illustrated broke the news that had been rumored for a long time that Pete Rose had been betting on baseball, including most heinously, most egregiously, he had been betting on his own games. And the next month, in April of 1989, he was handed a lifetime ban from the sport of baseball. One of the greatest players ever to play the game was excommunicated from the game. He, is, he was an outcast, a pariah, and he was denied entry into the holy temple of baseball, which is Cooperstown, where he should have had his own room. All because he bet on himself. Now, a lot of us who know the story of Pete Rose, some of us who might have just heard it for the first time this morning, are sitting here being like, and he got what he deserved. You don't bet on yourself as a professional athlete. He completely compromised the integrity of the game, and he should never be associated with the game of baseball again. Now, hold that thought and fast forward with me about 20 years after that. Thanksgiving Day, 1989, ABC ran a behind-the-scenes special on Thanksgiving night on the queen herself, Queen B, Beyonce. Say my name. one of the most successful female entertainment artists of all time, uh, lead singer of Destiny's Child, own solo career after that, better half of Jay-Z, multiple times on the time 100 most influential people in the world list. In 2015, Forbes called her the most powerful woman in all of entertainment. She has more money than anyone in this room can even fathom. Actually, if you can fathom it, I'd love to meet you after the service. (laughs) And in that documentary, at one point when she is talking about what got her to where she is at, this is what she said. She said, I don't like to gamble, but if I'm willing to bet on one thing, it's myself. If I'm willing to bet on one thing, it's myself. Pete Rose bet on himself, and he was destroyed for it. Beyonce bet on herself, and we loved it. You can still get mugs and t-shirts and find internet memes with that quote on it. it it's, like, it's like, bet on yourself, destroy your life, or bet on yourself, get the world and everything along with it. So what's the deal? Now, obviously, like, I, I'm not the smartest guy in this room, but I do understand there's a little bit of a difference between those two scenarios. Right? As a professional athlete, you're just not allowed to bet on yourself. You, just, you, you can't do it. It compromises totally the integrity of the game. But as an entertainer, or a business person, or a teacher, or an artist, or a pastor, well, maybe not a pastor, if you bet on yourself, that's like one of the highest values that our culture understands. It's like one of the foundational values of the world that we live in, that you are good enough you are smart enough, and golly, people really like you. And you can't bet on anybody, you can't count on anyone else except yourself. And if you will just bet on yourself, you too could be a multi Grammy winning artist with hundreds of billions of dollars and be married to Jay Z. 
And that's not all that bad, right? So like even the Bible says, God has given each one of us gifts and talents and abilities, and he calls us to use those and lean into them. If you know the parable of the talents, it's like you buried the talent that I gave you, you wicked servant. God wants us to use the gifts and abilities and talents that he has given us. But there is a huge danger for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. For those of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, there's a huge danger of importing that cultural value of the world where I can do it myself into the kingdom of God. Kingdom of the world loves it. In the kingdom of God, this is going to sound like hyperbole, but it's not. It's not just dangerous, it's deadly in the kingdom of God. Don't don't be coming up into God's house betting on yourself. Destroyed Pete Rose. Beyonce did great, but it... It is not what we need to do when we come into God's house. So we're starting a new series today. It is a series on generosity. It is called uh, Generosity, It Does a Body Good. And here's what I love about this series. I've been here at Midtown for about two months. And in those two months, I have heard uh, someone, mostly Randy, say no fewer than 47 times, we don't ask for your money here at Midtown. And so when we decided we were going to do a, ser- uh, a series on generosity, and I was uh, asked to preach the first sermon in that series, I thought that makes a ton of sense because Midtown can't ask for your money, but the new guy, Gary, Gary can't ask for your money. <laughs> I spent a number of years in sales, and so here we go. This is like riding a bike for me. Um, but for all of you who right now in this moment who are like, uh, this is why I don't like coming to church. I don't like it when they ask me for my money. Uh, I can put your hearts at ease because I'm actually not going to talk about money at all in this service. Uh, The next two weeks, it's a three-week series. The next two weeks, I'm going to let Randy do that. All I'm going to do today, all I'm going to do today is help us set a foundation for what it looks like to actually be generous people. Our heart is that Midtown as a church, Midtown as a movement, and each of us individually, this year would move towards being radically generous people. Because, not because we want you to give a bunch of money to Midtown, though that would be great if you did, but because generosity and radical generosity is simply one of the marks of someone who follows Jesus Christ with their life. And so one of the ways that you know that you have Jesus in your life, one of the ways that you know that you are in him is that you can look at your life and say, I am generous. And the only way, the only way we can possibly begin to start to talk about generosity and understand generosity is if we first understand, and this is the whole sermon, I'm giving it away right up front, is if we first understand how generous God has been towards us. We don't even know what generosity is. We can't even understand the concept unless we know the God of the universe and what he has done for each one of us. So here we go. What do a a tax collector, a Pharisee, Beyonce, and Pete Rose have to do with generosity? I hope we're going to see a lot as we dig into the text. So I just want to draw out two things from this text this morning as we study it together. And the first one is this. Uh, We bring nothing to the table. When we come to God, we bring nothing to the table. If you'll come back with me, starting in verse 9 of the passage we're looking at, Jesus is telling a parable, and Luke tells us who he is speaking this parable to. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Can I give you the new Gary translation of that verse? He told this parable to some who were betting on themselves. 
that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Most scholars think he's speaking to a group of Pharisees, and that would make sense because in the very next verse, he says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. We'll come back to the tax collector in a moment, but let's just hang out with the Pharisee for one second. If you've been in church for any length of time, there's probably a pretty good chance that you hear the word Pharisee and something comes up in your mind, some kind of judgment is made, and for most of us, all of us, we're like, those are the bad guys. And that makes sense, because when we read through the Gospels, there's no group in Jesus' life that he goes in harder on than the Pharisees. But what we need to do our best to do is try and understand this as Jesus' audience would have understood it when he's teaching this parable, and Luke's audience would have understood it when he's writing this a few decades after Jesus' life. The Pharisees were the conservative party of Judaism at the time of Jesus. They were very concerned about the Hellenization of the Jewish people, of the influence of the Greek culture, and so they were doing everything in their power to maintain the religion of their forefathers, of the patriarchs. They held high the Torah, the law of Moses. They held high the oral tradition, and they were highly influential and highly respected by the average Jewish person at the time that Jesus was walking the earth. So we hear Pharisee, and we're like, oh, bad guys. Most people who hear this story when Jesus is telling it, they're like, oh, this is a good guy. And he's going up into the temple, which is kind of the place that he should be because he's a Pharisee. So we got to be careful not to make a quick judgment there on, on Pharisee. Look at the prayer, though, that Jesus puts in his mouth, starting in verse 11. It says, uh, the Pharisee, standing by himself. The word Pharisee literally means the separated one or the holy one. And so Jesus is like, he's painting a physical picture of what this guy's name meant. The Pharisee, the separated one, is standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. In two sentences, uh, this Pharisee manages to say I five times. As one commentator said about uh, the verse before this, verse 10, he said, two men went up into the temple to pray, but only one actually prayed. This is not a prayer. It's a resume. It's a recitation of all the good things that he has done and all the bad things that he is not. This man is coming into God's presence, into the temple, and he is basically saying, God, as I come into your presence, I'm betting on myself, and I like my chances. The heart of this prayer is, God, aren't you lucky to have somebody like me? Aren't you fortunate that someone like me has decided to serve you with my life. And look at all these righteous things that I do. The problem with this prayer, as some of you will know, the prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus, in Isaiah 64, 6, God says through the prophet Isaiah, I'm paraphrasing, he says, all of your righteous deeds are like filthy rags compared to me and my holiness. And this Pharisee, this made-up Pharisee for Jesus' purposes of Jesus' parable, he would have had the writings of Isaiah. And yet here he comes into God's house, and he is like, God, look at all of my righteous deeds. Aren't you fortunate that you've got someone like me in your service? Uh, in 1990, this was early in the career of the uh, greatest basketball player ever to play the game. I'm from Cleveland, and so like, I have authority to say this. LeBron wasn't playing in the league in 1990. Michael Jordan and the Bulls were playing the Cleveland Cavaliers. A lot of bad things happened in Cleveland. I'm working through it. And Michael Jordan scored the highest point total of his entire career 
in that game against the Cavs, 1990, he scored 69 points. He had a rookie teammate that year named Stacy King. He was a role player at best his rookie year. He was a role player for really the rest of his career. And after the game, as the media is just clamoring around Jordan, asking him about this otherworldly performance and what he saw and what he did and how it happened, a few lockers down, Stacy King pipes up. Uh, oh, sorry. Stacy King came in in garbage time, and he got fouled, and he scored one point. And after the game, media's all over Jordan, and Stacey King says so that everyone can hear, I will always remember this as the night that Michael Jordan and I combined for 70 points. <laughs> and that is the heart of the prayer that this Pharisee is praying before God Almighty. He is like, and the scoreboard of that guy's life, God has 70 points and he has zero. And he is like, I'll always remember this as the life that you and I, God, combined to do some really, really amazing things. And the danger for us is because it is such a caricature. Like we read those two verses, this prayer, and we're like, this guy is a buffoon. The danger for us is to distance ourselves from it and be like, that has nothing to do with me. Because actually, and this is where we're going to kind of bring it to our neighborhood a little bit. I think we're a lot more like this Pharisee than we think we are. I think it is really easy for us, especially in a place like this. I told the first service, I thought I was in Nashville, but then I'm told I'm in Green Hills, and then I'm in 12 South, and wherever we are, this place is full of resources. Not even this place. We can talk about this room right now. The, the educational resumes of you all in this room. I know y'all went to Vanderbilt. We're happy for you, okay? That's a great accomplishment. And, and, and you, got, you guys have successful careers, and you have beautiful homes, and you have beautiful cars, and you have pickup trucks, the beautiful, beautiful pickup trucks that you all have. And when you live like this, it is really easy, it's subversively, to come up into God's presence and be like, I've done a lot of really good things. I'm a good person. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly better than my neighbor. I'm certainly better than this person sitting next to me, or maybe not right next to you in church, but down the row from you in church. Um, God, aren't you fortunate to have someone like me? And if, even if we don't explicitly say that, I think in our, like, in our interactions with God, a lot of times we do. Particularly, think about it when things get hard. When life doesn't go the way you want, when someone is sick, when work is not going the way you want, when bad things happen, when disappointing things happen. How, how many of us, and I'm like, I'm, first of all of you, I'm like, God, I've been in church all my life. I've memorized Bible verses. I saved myself for marriage. And this is how you repay me? I, I'm, I'm in a small group. I have a quiet time three or four times a week. Like, God, can't you see all the good things I'm doing for you? I deserve more than what you are giving me. But the clear teaching of this scripture and so many others is that when we come to God, we bring nothing to the table. We bring nothing to the table. Now, I'm sorry. I know that's harsh, and I hope that's not offensive. If it is, you can email me, randy at midtownfellowship.org. <laughs> we bring nothing to the table. And here's the second thing. Uh, only other point I want to make out of this text, and that is this. God is generosity. Now, for those of you taking notes, and you're writing that down, and you're like, that doesn't even sound like good English. It's not. I tried wordsmithing it. I tried coming up with a better way to say it. I thought, you know, God is generous. 
But that makes it sound like he's generous among a bunch of other things and beings and people who are generous too. But God is not just generous. God is generosity. It's, it's who he is. It's an, it's, his, it's an attribute. Now listen, no serious, systematic theologian in their work on the attributes of God is going to put generosity. You know, like omniscience, omnipresence, immutability, impassibility, generosity. But listen, I'm just the pastor in residence, and so I'm going to put it on my list of the attributes of God. God is generosity. We don't even understand the concept except that God invented it and showed us what it is. So some of you are like, well, what is it? And I'll tell you, and this comes straight from a very heady scholarly source called Google. Generosity is simply a readiness to give more of something such as time or money than is necessary or expected. Generosity is a readiness to give more of something such as time or money than is necessary or expected. Generosity is just exceeding expectations. It's giving more than is, than is needed. It's giving more than is expected. And we can't even start to think about it until we recognize that that is exactly what God has done for us. And that is exactly what the tax collector embodies in the passage that we are looking at. So continue with me in this text. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, he was socially distant before COVID. He's, he's so, well, I'll get there in a minute standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He stands far off. He won't look up to heaven. He beats his breast. It is the posture of total humility, and I would say more than total humility, this is the posture of someone who is broken. This is the prayer of someone who is broken. And that doesn't really like hit home too much for us until we do the same thing with the tax collector that we did with the Pharisee. And that is we try and enter in and understand what the audience would have understood when Jesus said a tax collector went up to the temple to pray. Tax collectors were maybe the most hated class of people in all of first century Judaism. More often than not, a tax collector was an ethnic Jew who had gone to work for Rome, who was oppressively um, occupying, sorry, that word wasn't coming to me, who was occupying uh, Judaism, what is it, Israel, thank you, sorry, Jewish Judaism, Israel. Rome was occupying Israel, and tax collectors went to work for Rome collecting taxes. And the way that worked is Rome said, here's what your district owes us, Whatever you collect on top of that is yours to keep. So they were traitors, they were working for the oppressor, and they were stealing from their mom and dad, their aunties and their uncles and their brothers and their sisters, and living high because of it. Listen to what one scholar says about the the office of tax collector at the time of Jesus. He says, an honest tax collector was in principle a starving tax collector. First job requirement was you had to be a liar to take the job. A Jew who collected taxes was a cause of disgrace to his family, expelled from the synagogue, and disqualified as a judge or witness in court. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. That's what lepers rendered houses unclean. And oh, by the way, so did tax collectors. Jews were forbidden from receiving money, including alms from tax collectors, since tax revenues were deemed robbery. Jewish contempt of tax collectors is epitomized in the ruling that Jews could lie to tax collectors with impunity, a ruling with which both the houses of Hillel and Shammai, who normally stood poles apart, agreed. So God is like, Ten Commandments, don't bear false witness. The Jewish people were like, unless it's to a tax collector. 
Tax collectors were tangible reminders of the Roman domination, detested alike for its injustice and Gentile uncleanness. So the people listening to Jesus tell this story or the people reading Luke's gospel of Jesus, when they hear tax collector, they're like, yeah, obviously he doesn't bring anything to the table. He's not even allowed to come to the table. And yet what does Jesus say in verse 14? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So remember, original audience, they're like Pharisees, one, one foot in heaven already, tax collectors, lowest rung of hell possible. And the upshot of the story, Jesus says, is it is the tax collector who went home right with God that day. Would have been completely shocking. And I hope we can kind of feel some of the shock of that as we look at this story today. They would have been like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And yet it's Jesus talking. And so we, it's the word of God. How did the tax collector go home justified that day? Because he came up into the temple to pray. And instead of saying, God, look at all my righteous deeds. He said, God, if I bet on myself, I am dead. I bring nothing to the table. There is nothing I can do, say, or show you that would, carry, would, would grant, gain any favor with you. My only hope is to throw myself at your feet and plead for your mercy. And Jesus says God gave it to him that day because God is generosity, more than is expected or is needed. My favorite scene from the story I was going to say the book, Les Miserables, but I've never read the book. I've watched the movie. My favorite scene from the story of Les Miserables is the scene where Jean Valjean, which that is a great name to say, Jean Valjean, he uh, is homeless. He is destitute. He is at the bottom rung of society. He is sleeping on the streets. He's getting beat up. What little he has is being stolen from him. He's cold and he's hungry and he's sick. And the bishop of the church invites him to come spend the night in the church. And he brings him in and he is generous towards him. He gives him more than is needed or expected. They feed him a delicious meal. He warms himself by the fire. They give him a soft, comfortable bed. And in the middle of the night, John Valjean, to repay their generosity towards him, gets up, fills a sack with the most valuable silverware from the church, and steals it. And the next day, the police bring John Valjean back to the bishop. They say, we found him. He's got all the silverware from the church, and he told us, they say this incredulously, that you gave it to him. And I love this scene because the bishop goes, I am very angry. And you're like, yeah, that's right. He's going to nail him. That's what you get. That's what you get for treating their generosity like that. He goes, I am very angry because you forgot the candlesticks. These are the most valuable pieces of the whole set. Why would you forget the candlesticks? Here, make sure you take the candlesticks. And he says, of course I gave this to him. And the police set him free and let him go. And do not miss the picture that that paints of God's generosity towards us. Every one of us in our own way, and I don't mean to offend you by this, but it is the teaching of scripture. Every one of us in our own way is like the, the prodigal son. We come to God and we're like, you seem okay, but I would much prefer you were dead because I just like your stuff more than you. And even though we come to God with that posture, he doesn't say, you know, to heck with you, get out of my sight. He's like, here, let me give you more on your way out. 
because he loves us so much and it is, so, it, is, it is such his heart to love his children that he cannot help but give us more than is needed or expected. God is the source of generosity. And that is why we get verses 15 to 17 right after this where the little children want to come to Jesus and we've all heard, if we've been in church, we've heard this story a hundred times and the disciples are like, no, and Jesus is like, let them come to me. And we're like, why did, why did Luke put that right there? Because he's painting a picture of what the tax collector just did. God is like, when you come to me, you need to come to me like a little child. I have four children. I can tell you firsthand, they bring nothing to the table. <laughs> Everything they have is because I have given it to them, and it is my joy to do so. And how much more so our, our Father in heaven, who is like, you all bring nothing but problems to the table. Everything you have is from me. And Midtown, there is no way we can move towards being a generous people or a generous church in 2023 if we do not understand that. Everything we have is because God has given it to us. And I know it's, it's hard to think that way, but like your degrees, your, and I'm not just talking about money, like your time, your talents, your gifts, your resources, the fact that your heart is beating right now, the fact that you are able to draw a breath right now is evidence of how generous God has been to you. And the number one barrier this year to us moving into a space of radical generosity is if we think it's ours. The number one thing that is going to make it impossible for us to be a generous people is to think, it's mine. I earned it. I'm, I bet on myself, and I made a good bet, and, and my time is mine, and my talents are mine, and my treasure is mine, and that pickup truck is mine. It's not yours. God gave it to you so that you could use it for him and for his kingdom and for his glory. And rather than being bummed about that, maybe we can just praise him for it because that is amazing. When we get that into our heads and into our hearts, that everything we have is from God, now the discussion of what does it look like to be generous goes from being a burden to being a joy. Now it goes from how do I turn on the hose of generosity in my life to how do I control the flow of generosity in my life? We can be a generous people because God has been so abundantly generous to us. And as we finish, uh, this is just what I want to say. I know a lot of us are like, I have a lot of things and I have agency in my life and I have a lot of good things. And some of us might be here today and be like, I don't have a lot of good things and my life hasn't gone the way I want. And I don't feel like God has filled my pockets with just a, a ton of great stuff. Wherever you're at on that spectrum, this is how I want to close it up. Because wherever you feel like your lot in life has fallen, we can still say with all kinds of confidence that God has been abundantly generous to us. Circle back with me to the prayer that the tax collector prays in verse 13. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I didn't say this earlier, but in Greek, sinner has the article on it, the definite article. So in Greek, it really says the sinner. It, it softens it to say a sinner. But he's not saying, God, have mercy on me, like one among many sinners. He's saying, God, have mercy on me, the chief of sinners, the sinner. That word that is translated merciful in the ESV that is not the typical Greek word for mercy. There's a word that's translated mercy about 25 or 30 times in the New Testament. This is not it. This word shows up only here and one other place, and that's in Hebrews 2.17. And in Hebrews 2.17, it is not translated merciful. It is translated as propitiation. 
So you can see why the translators of Luke went with merciful instead of propitiation. Propitiation is kind of a churchy word. A lot of us have heard it a few times. We're kind of like, what does that even mean? It's a synonym for atonement. Propitiation is the covering of a wrongdoing or a sin and paying the penalty for that sin. And here's the deal. This Greek word that's used here in Hebrews 2.17 is the same word that is used of the high priest of Israel on the day of atonement who once a year God called him to go into the Holy of Holies, the place that God's earthly presence dwelled and to make atonement, to make a sacrifice, to do what? To cover the sins of the people, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So here's this tax collector and Jesus takes the language of the high priest of Israel and he puts it in the mouth of a tax collector. And he's not saying here, God, have mercy on me. Don't give me something that I deserve. He's saying here, God, make propitiation for my sin. He's saying, make atonement for my sin. And what Hebrews 2.17 says, the only other place that word is used is he says, it says that Jesus Christ is the true high priest who once and for all went into the holy of holies and made a sacrifice, except it wasn't a lamb or a goat or a bull. It was his own body. And in that sacrifice, he covered the sins of the people once and for all. That is the generosity of God. That though we were dead in our sins, God, through Christ, has made us alive and welcomed us back into relationship with him. So as we head into 2023, uh, may I encourage all of us not to bet on ourselves. Let's bet on Jesus. As, As Dave said in the first service, that's not a bet. It's a guarantee. God is so generous, and through that, we can be so generous to others. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day and this time, and thank you for your word, which we believe is literally the source of our life. I ask now that you would um, help the truth of your words to sink deep into our hearts and mind. And God, I pray that you would help us with the power of your Holy Spirit to become a, a exceedingly and abundantly generous people, not just with our money, but with our time, with our gifts, and every other good thing that you have given us. Thank you for what you did through Jesus on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.